Well, take your Bibles and turn it to that passage in Mark. We are going through a series in Mark. My name is Kyle, and it's good to see you all here. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables there for you. Um, There's also visitor guides there if you are wondering more about our church, who we are, what we believe. uh, Go pick one of those up. Um, As you're turning to Mark, I want to tell you a story. Uh, I was in high school, and I was going off to Young Life Camp. It is a ministry to high schoolers, uh, especially high schoolers um, that's, uh, maybe not connect, who maybe aren't connected to the church. And, and their big thing that they work up towards all year is getting these kids to camp. And I was one of the kids, and I went to camp in Minnesota. It's the land of a thousand lakes. It's the land of a billion mosquitoes, I found out. Uh, you, you need a parka, not for the rain, but to protect yourself from the mosquitoes. Anyway, there was a lake there, and one of the activities they had that I was very excited about doing was parasailing. So I go and I get in the boat, and I had been parasailing before um, with, with my mother, who's here today. We had gone parasailing in Florida, and one of the things that we did when we parasailed in Florida that I thought was awesome was they dipped our feet in the water. And so I... I um, I asked the counselor who was driving the boat if he could dip our feet in the water. Yes, you heard that right. The counselor who was driving the boat. That should be your first indication that things are not going to go well. And they didn't. This counselor learned to drive a boat two weeks before. Had never driven a boat of parasailers, right? A college counselor driving high schoolers who were parasailing. So I'm there with um, a friend who's in front of me. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, it, at first it was going well. We start to lower down. And then his toes dangle the water. And then his feet and his ankles. And then, uh, and then his knees and my feet. And then his waist and my knees. And then my chest was fully submerged under the water as he was in between my legs being drugged under the water. And Jesus decided that it wasn't our time to go. And so we made it out alive. We actually popped back up. And here's a tip. You can do that on ocean waters because of the wind. You cannot do it on a lake, okay? Just by the way, learn that the hard way. Anyway, we're going back down. As we're going back down, you know, we're screaming and, and we're kind of like adrenaline is, is rushing through us. And I'm like, we almost died. We almost died. That was amazing. Uh, and, uh, and the counselor, we get down and the counselor gets, and you know, the first thing he says to us is, um, are you all right? And that was followed shortly after by, don't tell anyone this happened. Well, fat chance, right? As soon as we got back to the camp, we were telling everyone how we almost died on the parasailing boat. Uh, you know, there are some experiences in life that are so meaningful and so amazing that we just can't keep them to ourselves. You know what I'm talking about? I, I saw this tweet once that was, um, for those of you who don't know, there's this thing called Twitter, and for whatever reason, people put little slogans and sentences on there, and other folks just waste a lot of hours scrolling through them. And there was this tweet, like me, and I was wasting time, and this tweet said, in quotes, I didn't know you ran a marathon. 
attributed to nobody ever, right? (laughs) Because people who run marathons tell everyone that they ran a marathon because there are some experiences that you have in life that are so meaningful, so impactful that you just can't keep them to yourself. Well, that's what happens in the passage before us. Verse 36 says that Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. These people in this passage, they had an experience, a period of something that was so impactful, so meaningful, that they couldn't help but proclaim it. They couldn't help but talk about it. And what was it that they experienced? They experienced the restorative ministry of Jesus. And we all love restoration. We all love restoration. There's a, uh, there's a prison in Boston's Charles Street Prison. It had some of the most notorious criminals ever that lived there. It was so bad that they had to shut the prison down. It's been uh, renovated, and you used to, uh, you could get into that prison by, you know, Grand Theft Auto or something like that. Now you can get in by paying 300 bucks a night because they spent some 11 to $20 million renovating this thing, and it's this really nice hotel, and it's always booked because we love restoration. I've, um, I've had more people talk to me about this art uh, exhibit than any of the other ones because it's about restoration. It's about taking broken things and seeing them restored and renewed. I, I never forget, I got to go to uh, Medellin a couple years ago and I was teaching there. Medellin, only you know, 15 to 20 years ago, was the most violent city in the world. So violent, so notorious for its violence and drug crime that there's a blockbuster Netflix original based on it, right? Narco. And the city's been completely transformed. And it's so beautiful. Uh, the city's set on uh, this hill, these two hills. And, um, and in the slums there, places where the most violent parts of the city were, were police officers wouldn't even enter. They would not cross the line of the district. People would not leave their homes. No one would walk outside in the middle of broad daylight. It was so dangerous. And now, right there, in the midst of these slums, there are these beautiful outdoor escalators going up the hill. And they're free, and people get on them all the time to go up and down the hill. And besides these escalators, there's this beautiful street art lining the escalators. And, and it's a symbol, it's a picture of the extent that the restoration has, has gone through in Medellin. Well, here we have two stories. Stories that are potent symbols of the extent of Jesus' restoration. And I want to look at them this morning, but before we do, let me pray for us. God, as we look at your word, And as we look at Jesus, who does all things well, fill us with hope and joy 
and give us an experience that we can't help but talk about. Because we experience him. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Well, I want you to see two things from this passage today, or these passages really, these two stories. The two things that I want you to see are, is I want you to see that Jesus' restoration extends first to the whole world, and second, I want you to see that Jesus' restoration extends to the whole person. So first, Jesus' restoration extends to the whole world. We have these two stories, one in uh, verses 24 and 30, and the other in verses 31 through 37. And it is important to note that both of these stories are record Jesus' ministry in non-Jewish territory, Gentile territory. The region of Tyre and Sidon is known for being, uh, notorious for being enemies of Israel. If you go and just do a Google search uh, on a Bible search on Tyre and Sidon, you will see that these were a people who dogged and harassed and plagued the Israelites throughout history. The Decapolis, the place where he goes secondly, is a place that is still actually uh, overrun with Gentiles. It is, um, it's under Roman rule, but it's also um, dominantly influenced by Roman culture. And we have to remember the context here. There's no coincidence that Mark places these two stories right after Jesus has this dispute with the Pharisees over what foods are clean and what foods are unclean. You see, because food is always about more than food. Food is about social boundaries, I mean, think about it. If you are a vegan, it's very hard to eat with people who are not vegan. If you're a vegan, it's very hard to eat with someone who's paleo. If you are not kosher, it's very hard to have people who are kosher into your home to eat. Food is about more than food. Jesus was not uh, just talking about um, some personal, private, uh, new, um, uh, changing personal private ethics when he said all foods are clean. He was actually erasing a social boundary, the boundary that separated Jews from Gentiles. And now he's showing that that boundary, he means it, because he's going into Gentile territory. Which brings us to, brings us to this story of this woman in verse 27. He is a Jew and she is a Gentile. She is unclean. He is the holy son of David. He is a worshiper of the one true God, the creator of the ends of the earth. She, well, she is a pagan dog. That's at least how Jesus refers to her when he draws this analogy. He says in verse 27, when she comes with her, her need, that she has a daughter who is possessed by a demon, she comes, and Jesus responds, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. Now you have to understand, uh, and I've, I've preached on this passage in Matthew, and you can go look that up. Um, I deal with it in more detail. 
But the thing to understand here is that um, what Mark is pointing out, what Mark's drawing our attention first and foremost, is that Jesus, he's the Messiah of Israel. And he came, first and foremost, to restore Israel. And Jesus is saying, look, I've got a task that takes priority, and that task is to restore Israel as Israel's Messiah. But she is not part of Israel. She is a Gentile. And and she would seem to be completely unqualified. I mean, she hails from a city that has oppressed and tormented the people of Israel for centuries. Everything about her would seem to qualify her. She has no rights, no access, no advocates, no avenues. And yet she goes to him. Maybe some of you feel like that this morning. Maybe you've been strangely intrigued by the carpenter from Galilee. That there's something about him that is compelling. But you think, no, Jesus, he's for other people. He's for religious people. He's for people who grow up in church. He's for maybe Western people, and I'm not Western. Uh, He's he's for uh, traditional people, and I don't feel very traditional. He's for morally upright people, and I don't feel very morally upright. Jesus, he's for other people. But let me ask you a question. Are you desperate like she was desperate? Do you need hope like she needed hope? Do you need healing like she needed healing? In other words, are you needy? Then Jesus is for you. One time, Pam and I were talking with some friends and we were talking about our college experience, and all of a sudden the topic of college scholarships came up for whatever reason. And as we were talking, our friend, who's from San Diego, um, said, uh, wait, you mean you guys got scholarships? And we were like, yeah. And then she started kind of getting mad. And she said, well, what makes you so special? And we started to realize that she thought that there were maybe, you know, four scholarships in the whole world. And that scholarships were, people, were for people that made 1,500s on their SAT or 1,600s on their SAT and also um, came from, like, complete poverty. And unless you had those two kind of things going for you, there were no scholarships out there. And we were like, no, there are tons of scholarships out there for all kinds of things. Like, there are scholarships for this and scholarships for this. And they're like, they have a huge range and you just have to apply. And, and, and really, all, all you have to be is needy. And she had no idea. She thought, like, scholarships are not for people like her because she came from a middle-class family. And she made A's and B's, but she wasn't the valedictorian. So she thought she didn't even know that, that this was out there for her. Uh, and she was kind of upset because, you know, she had paid all this money for college and didn't even know to apply. Um, tip. For all you high schoolers, apply to as many scholarships as you can. I think some of us approach Jesus like that. 
we think that he is for the select few people, these special people. Jesus is not for special people. Jesus is for needy people, any needy person. Well, how then do you get him? Well, she gives us the model. She gives us the model. He says in verse 27, the children must be fed first. And she picks up on that and says, yes, Lord, in verse 28. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, yes, the children must be fed first, but they're not the only people who are fed. And, and, and can't I be fed as well? And, and notice that she doesn't get offended. She doesn't say, I'm not a dog. She doesn't assert her rights. She doesn't have a sense of entitlement. I mean, this is humility. She doesn't have claim on Jesus. She doesn't say, I'm worthy. And yet, she knows she's needy. And yet, even though there's humility here, there's also great boldness. She still goes to him. She still counters him. Yes, but... Yes, yet even. But she's bold not because of her own goodness, but because of his goodness. She's bold not because of her own qualifications, but because of his qualifications. She's bold not because of she's so great, but because he's so gracious. She doesn't say, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She says, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. See, there are two attitudes that can keep us from Jesus. One is this sense of superiority, this lack of humility, an overestimation of our own worth. And if we aren't needy, then we won't come to him. If we don't come as beggars, then we won't come at all. And until we can come as beggars, we're not going to come to him. That's one way, that's one thing that can keep us from Jesus, our pride. But you know, something else can keep us from Jesus as well. And that is to underestimate his grace. It's to think, my sin is too great for him. I am too far gone for him. And that will keep us from him as well. You know, we can, we can overestimate our own goodness, but we can also underestimate his grace. And she does neither. She understands her own lack of worth, but she also understands the greatness of the Savior who has a feast on the table, and the feast is so large that it can't fit, that it falls off. And Jesus acknowledges this, this humble boldness. Verses 29 and 30, and he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now don't miss what has just happened. Yes, Jesus has tenderly cared for one woman who is very needy. And desperate. And that's important. But this is also the Jewish Messiah who was healed, a Gentile. This is the Jewish, this is the king of the Jews. 
who Mark is saying is also the Savior of the world. And that is both an encouragement to outsiders and a challenge to insiders. It's an encouragement to outsiders. Outsiders, perhaps, like Mark's Gentile audience. Because it says, look, you are not disqualified from Jesus. He is for you. He is for anyone. No matter what your background, no matter what your upbringing, no matter what your education, no matter what your social political leanings, he is for you. But it also challenges insiders, insiders like me, insiders like many of us. It challenges us to draw boundaries around the universality of Jesus' lordship and his salvation. It, it, it challenges us to think that there are people that are too far gone or too far removed or too far away or, or who because of their background or their qualifications or wherever they are in life to think there's no way Jesus can reach them. Listen, I don't, I don't care if someone grows up in Kazakhstan who received a track that fell from an airplane that I heard about a year ago and became a Christian, Jesus can reach them. I don't care if it's someone in Iran who had a vision, who Jesus appeared in a vision to, Jesus can reach them. And I don't care if it's the person down the street who doesn't know the first thing about how Jesus died and rose again, and that's what Christians believe for the sins of the world. He can reach anyone. And everyone. And we should not limit him. And we should not draw boundaries around him because his restoration affects the whole world. That's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus' restoration also extends to the whole person. In verse 31, he enters the region of the Decapolis, and there he finds a man who is tongue-tied and hard of hearing, verse 32. And to understand the significance of this healing and why Mark records it, you need to understand the metaphor and the illusion. First, the metaphor. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, hearing and seeing are metaphors. They're used metaphorically throughout. They're very, very important. So, for instance, in just a, a chapter later, in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus corrects the disciples and says to them, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? See, the eyes and the ears are the receptacles that we have for experiencing and understanding God's presence and work in our lives and in the world. And when, our, when we're hard of hearing or when we're blind, we don't see him at work in our lives and in the world, and we can't hear him and respond to him. In other words, there are more than one ways to be hard of hearing, right? Um, my grandfather slowly lost his hearing over time. And he, we said, was hard of hearing uh, because he was having a physical ailment. But you know, there's another way to be hard of hearing too, like me mostly growing up with my teachers. They said I was hard of hearing, and it wasn't because I played drums or rode motorcycles. It was because I was stubborn, right? We use it metaphorically as well. 
And Jesus' disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark, they have to continually come face to face with their stubbornness. And this healing, Jesus is coming to say, look, I, I don't only heal. Uh, I came to heal your stubborn hearts. I, I came to heal your malformed wills, your misaligned desires. Maybe you've come face to face with your stubbornness as we've studied the Gospel of Mark or maybe some other way. I know I do. Let me let you in on a little secret, a couple things about me. Um, So there's rarely a night that I go to bed and I think, I wish I would have spoken more today. Like, I should have spoken up more in that conversation. I, I shouldn't have given other people as much room to talk. Now, most of the time I go to bed at night and think, I spoke way too much. Why do I speak way too much? And because I speak way too much, I am always putting my foot in my mouth and trying to, like, get it out. Two or three times a week this happens, like, that I know about, right? So that's the ones that I experience. Uh, And you could name lots of others. And here's the second thing about me. You've heard of people who can talk their way out of anything? Well, for some reason, I think that I can talk my way or other people's ways into anything. And so I think if I could just talk enough, if I could just apply enough logic, if I could just apply enough rationale, if I could just teach enough, then people will be changed. And um, that really doesn't go well with the first, combine very well with the first problem that I have, right? But it's why I'm constitutionally unable to preach a short sermon. It's why I can't lead a small group. If you come to a small group of mine, just, I just want you to know, um, it's me preaching sitting down, right? Uh, that's all it is, because I, I can't. But I know it's wrong. I know it's bad. I know that there's like this Messiah complex that's part of it. And I also know that that it kills me. Like the anxiety that I feel because I think every sermon, I've got 40 minutes to like prepare you and have you ready for glory, right? And I'm going to fix everybody's problems, including my own, in 40 minutes of preaching every week, right? And that's all I've got, just one shot, because Jesus could come back tomorrow. And, uh, and it's like, like Jesus ever put that pressure on me or ever gave me that, right? But I can't get over it, even though I know this, right? It's my stubborn heart. So that's me. What about you? What about the stubbornness of your heart? What things in your life? Is it the binge eating or drinking at night for comfort? Is it the the fact that you, you wake up every morning and when you look in the mirror, it's just the self-loathing. Is it the cycle of anger and bitterness when you think about that person or that family member and the inability to empathize? 
and that you, you want to get rid of, you want to stop those negative thoughts, but they just won't go away and over and over and over again. Is it the incessant comparing at the office? Is it the, that you know is wrong, that you know hurts, that you know is, is actually like keeping you from relationship with others, but you feel like you can't stop? Is it the jealousy and the inability to accept the lot that God has given you in life as his love? Well, if that's you this morning, I've got good news for you and me. This healing is a living parable. And Jesus came to heal our stubborn, rebellious, faithless, faulting, forgetful hearts. And he does all things well. This is a metaphor. And it's a beautiful metaphor. But it's not just a metaphor. Uh, I mean, this is actually an incredibly visceral and physical healing. Uh, I mean, Jesus gets like up in this guy's business. Did you notice that? Look at verse 33. That was a quote from a commentary. Um, In verse 33, Jesus uses his fingers and puts them in the guy's ears. He, He spits and puts it on the guy's tongue. I mean, this is incredibly physical. And it's also empathetic. In verse 34, Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs. He says, Epatha. That is, be opened. And it was so moving and so meaningful, Jesus' emotion, that it stuck and it was lost in the disciples' minds so that they couldn't even translate it. You know those things that are just in a language, a different language, and it's like untranslatable. Have you ever seen Life is Beautiful translated? It's no good. See it in Italian. So much is lost in translation. There, see, there are some, some things that it's just like to translate them. It misses the emotion. It misses the feeling. And here, it's left untranslated because Jesus, he is groaning. He is groaning with this man. It's the groan that we read about in Romans 8 where it says the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ groans with creation and its bondage to decay. God is not ignorant or indifferent to the groans of creation. And He is not ignorant or indifferent to the groans in your life. Many of you come in here this morning, many of us come in here this morning with bodies that cause us to groan. Some of you have headaches that dehabilitate you for days on end or half a day that have significantly set back your careers. Some of you have, uh, some of us have chronic back pain. And it's limited a lot of our activity in life. Others of us have allergies, like real allergies, like the kinds of allergies that make 
traveling or social engagements next to impossible. Some struggle with stomach problems, digestive issues that are so bad that you just don't even want to eat. Some battle infertility. Others of us have depression, a depression that is very much linked with a physiology that is off. Some of you, because of abuse, trauma at some point in your life, early in life, you carry that around in your body, and your body shudders. And we groan. We groan. Jesus groans with us. Jesus groans for us. And Jesus came to heal us. Verse 35, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus came to heal your soul, but not just your soul. He came to heal all of us, body and soul, the whole person. Which brings us to this illusion. The response from the crowd in verse 37 is that he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now clearly Mark has in mind in recording it this way, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is written to a people who are without hope. They are pessimistic about their future. Their land has been dried up. They have been kicked out of their homeland. And then they get this message. This message that says that one day, someday, God is going to do something that makes the very creation sing and shout for joy. He's going to come to save his people. And Isaiah 35 says, verses 5 and 6 say, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Listen to verse 37. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see, here we have this illusion. And Mark is saying, look, that prophecy, that promise about God coming to save his people, that is happening now. That is happening now in the ministry of Jesus See, that is who Christians believe Jesus is. If you're wondering who is Jesus and who, does Christian, who do Christians believe Jesus is, Jesus is the man God became when God decided to become a man. And he came to save us through his life and death and resurrection. But, but there's something curious about this. And, and, and that, is, that is that when Isaiah prophesies, it says, your God will come, your God will come to save you with retribution and vengeance. Your God will come to save you. But where's the retribution and where's the vengeance? Because Israel, they thought that he would come with retribution and vengeance, especially on their enemies. Enemies like the people of Tyre and Sidon. And yet he doesn't come down on her and judge her. Enemies like the Romans and the Decapolis, but he doesn't come down on them and judge them. What's going on? 
Well, he came with retribution and vengeance, but he did not come to bring it or enforce it on others. He came to take it on himself. You see, he was undone. He was made sick that we might be made well. He was disintegrated that we might be reintegrated. He was pierced that we might be put back together. He cried out in God forsaken us so that we could know the Father's smile and love. And he did these things, even these things, well. Mark is saying that this, this healing, it points beyond itself to something that is greater. Mark is saying that Jesus is healing. It's not just a one-off you know, traveling hospital. But it's a sign of God's love breaking into our painful and death-laden world. And it's a sign that's pointing to what he would do for the whole world one day. You see, what he did for one man at one place on that day, he's going to do for the whole world someday. That the promises of Isaiah 35 would come true. When I was a, a little boy, I used to sometimes go to this mall. It's called the Mall of Memphis, but we knew it better as the Mall of Murder. Because like people got murdered there quite often. It was a very desolate place, and you did not want to go to the Mall of Memphis, except there was one little bright spot, this oasis in the Mall of Memphis. I would go to the food court, and there in the food court, there would be someone standing there with a tray. And on that tray, there would be these little toothpicks. We called them samples. I called it a foretaste. Uh, you might call it chicken. I thought it tasted more like heaven, right? And at that point, there was only one Chick-fil-A in all of Memphis. And I would always run up, and I was always grab one of those samples. And as I, I ate that chicken sample, it was a foretaste of what would come. Uh, not only on my lunch that day, but when, well, Chick-fil-A would take over everywhere in my city, uh, but it really was this taste, this taste, this oasis of goodness, the only thing that I really loved in the Mall of Memphis. And there weren't like a lot of people, no one was doing samples back then, only Chick-fil-A, and they got me every time. Uh, but that sample pointed to something greater, a meal that was greater, and it gave me hope for something that was better. This... I also remember after I'd get the sample, because I would run ahead of my uh, parents there, run ahead of my mom, I would get the sample, and I would run back, and I'd be like, we got to go eat there, it's great, it's wonderful, and I'm like singing and dancing and skipping for joy. Well, <laughs> this miracle, it points beyond itself. It, it, it's a sign that points to what God is going to do over the whole earth. When the lame will leap, when tongues will be loose and sing and praise with joy. When he does something so great that, that even the cedars of Lebanon will sing because of what God has done. When everyone's response will be like the people's response here of uncontrollable, uncontainable joy and praise. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice, the blossom like a crocus. 
and it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. And this bright hope for tomorrow, it gives strength for today. Strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who are of an ancient heart, anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lamb shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Don't you want that? That's what's coming. That's what God's bringing. And guess what? Just as that, just as that healing was a foretaste of what was to come that day, just as that Chick-fil-A nugget was a foretaste of my lunch, so our joy and gladness and singing and praise is a foretaste. We get to become a foretaste of what the whole earth is going to look like. A sign of the coming reign of God and the joy and the celebration that it will bring. So we got a chance to do that now. To feast, to sing, to pray, to praise, and to tell the world what's coming. I invite you to do that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.